Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, good morning, Venture. We're in a great passage today that I'm excited about, but it's one that could be a little sticky in places, depending on your point of view. As we're going to be in Romans 13, how does a Christian respond to the governing authorities over them? You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody struggle with this in any way? Now, I want you to take out your Bibles. I want you to take out your Bibles. We're going to read through the text and then I'll pray. And I want us to read through it together. If you didn't bring a Bible, use one of the blue ones in front of you. This is a good one. I want you to read through it because there's parts of this you're not going to like. And I want you to know for a fact, most of it came from Paul, not me. Because as we said, anytime you preach all the way through scripture, there's parts of it that convicts all of us, no matter who we are, no matter where you're coming from. And Romans 13 is such an appropriate passage for our time and for our church and in this season. If you're using the blue Bible, it's probably 1,120 something. I'm not sure in the 20s there. You can turn there. Or if you've got your Bibles, read with me Romans 13, starting in verse one. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you must also pay taxes. (laughs) For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's take a moment and pray together and then we're gonna jump in this passage. Father, we come before you. We thank you that your word is true and continues to be true. I thank you that you wrote it divinely inspired so that it speaks across time. I'm always amazed when I come to passages like this, God, that you wrote it in a time period that was so different than ours. And yet it speaks to us today because you call us to a transcendent truth that is above any culture or country or time period. And yet you've called us to live it out in this time period, in this country, in this culture. And so we pray, would your Holy Spirit speak through your word? Would you open our mind and hearts? Could we learn truly from you what you wanna say to us today? We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. 
So as we look at this passage today, we're, we're gonna break it down kind of in three parts. One, we wanna look at what is God saying to governing authorities? What does he say to those who are in charge? Second, what is he saying to the people that live under those authorities? And then finally, what are some distinct ways that we would apply a passage like this in our time in this day? And so you look at it, the first part, what is the role of the government according to this passage? You see, all governing authorities, regardless of the form, are instituted by God. Paul's very strong that he starts right here. He goes, hey, anytime you look at a governing authority, you need to recognize, look how he puts it right out of the gate. Let every person be subject to governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, does it mean that he's giving his divine approval to every authority, the way that they're operating? Remember, we, we wrestled with this whole sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Well, it shows up in government as well. God sovereignly is in charge of any authority and we can trust his rule in that. While at the same time, holding those in account who may be abusing that rule and abusing people through that. But for those of us as Christians, and I think it's so important in this time, we skip past this and we kind of want to get to other applications. You need to stop real quick and go, there is a peace that comes from recognizing God's in control. Recognizing he has authority. Recognizing even when there's travesty of justice or things that we don't like, his authority is still in place. I think of that moment when Pilate looks at Peter or when Pilate looks at Jesus and, and he says to Jesus in it, he says, don't you know I, I hold your life in my hands? And Jesus just calmly looks at him. He says, you would have no authority apart from my father. I love when Jesus sent his church out on the great commission to go take this, this church and this message around the world. Remember how he starts the commissioning before he ever sends us out? He says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine. And when he says it, he's not just talking about governments. He's talking about all authority, the authority over life and death and eternity, everything is his. So, so as a Christian, our starting point is we just go there and we go, oh, okay, oh, isn't it great our dad is the one who has all authority? Isn't it great that Jesus, our savior, is the one who's conquered everything? And so Paul calls us to that. And, and I, I referenced it in my prayer. I think it's really important because remember, when he's writing this, and all of scripture, it applies across the last 2,000 years to all different forms of government, to all different forms of authority. It's always the thing that amazes me about scripture. It transcends time. It transcends the moment. Now, we are a people who very much get caught in the moment. <laughs> but as you look at this, you, you can recognize that no matter the relationship between Christians and the state with that, these verses are still true. In fact, John Stott, the, the pastor and theologian, he kind of identifies if you go throughout history, there's really four forms 
of relationship between church and state that you see in, in different governments. In fact, you look at it here and we won't camp out on it because it's a lot of big terms and all that. But really the relationship between church and state, Erastianism is where the state controls the church. It's where the state's in, in charge. You look at China today, you look at North Korea, you look at different parts where the state absolutely is in control and regulates everything about the church. Uh, a theocracy is the flip of that. It's where the church controls the state. So the religious power has more power over the state than anything else. You see this in different Muslim nations today. Theocracy, where the, the religious holy man, the Ayatollah may have much more power than an elected official with that. Uh, this is a rare form, Constantinianism. Ah, oh, I said it right. Uh, it was, goes back to Constantine. It's where the, the state would favor the church and the church would make accommodation for the state. You don't see it as much. It's a little bit what uh, Putin does this some in Russia though, gives favor to the church in ways in order to get favor back with that. And, and then the final one is a partnership where church and state, they recognize and respect their, uh, their respective responsibilities. They recognize their spheres with that. And so that's the goal of our founding fathers in this country, other democratic uh, democracies you see around the world, that respect between church and state in it. And, and so as you look at these different forms, notice Paul doesn't in the passage say, well, this is the one form that God favors the most. Now, obviously, I would think the partnership, I think, allows both to thrive the most. But as Christians, we have a responsibility, no matter what form we find ourselves in, to live out these passages. You, you recognize God's control, and, and here's why it's so important to recognize his control. Because otherwise, I think it's very easy for us either to get consumed with power. If we can just get enough power, we can get the right things done. Or we get fearful of power. And we're fearful of the wrong people have that power. One of the people in scripture, I, th I think to go back to the most, one of the guys who handled this so well was Daniel. Remember Daniel when he was as a teenager, taken into exile, and his adult life was spent in Babylon. And he served under some pretty despicable rulers. He served in different empires with that. Sometimes he was serving those leaders, other times he had to stand up to them with a powerful voice, and we'll talk about that. What does that mean to do that? Even to the threat of his life, he was thrown into a lion's den to be devoured because he stood for what was right. I love early on in Daniel. This is when he's still a teenager. And, and he's facing this. He finds himself in Babylon. He finds himself in this place. Look, look at Daniel's prayer. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. I think one of the keys that God was able to use Daniel so effectively over the course of 70 plus years in a pretty hard context, facing very difficult circumstances, is Daniel again and again believed this, God's the one in control. God's the one who has a plan, not the plan I would want. We're not at the place I would want. He certainly didn't wanna be in exile. But, but I'm trusting God's authority 
And it gives me a freedom then to respond in the way that God's called me to. Whether that means the times when I need to subject to that authority or the times when I need to stand up to the authorities that are here, I can do that because I know that God is in control. Uh, The second thing we see about the authorities in this passage, one core role of the governing authorities is to administer justice by punishing those who do wrong. Is a core reason. And now this comes right out of what we talked about in Romans chapter 12. Remember in Romans 12, God said, it's not yours to take vengeance. You release vengeance to God. And now he's following back up and he goes, this is one of the ways that God executes his vengeance on those who do wrong. It's one of the reasons I'm able to release it personally to God is because God has put governing authorities in place. Look, look at the verse four, he says this. And he's talking about the governing rulers. He is God's servant for your good. That word servant is actually minister. He actually has a minister role, not like a minister of a church because church is a different sphere. Home is a different sphere. My personal responsibility is a different sphere. And then in, in a country, the governing authorities have a sphere where they're accountable to God, but they're also a minister to God. Look at the, one of the core parts of this role. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And so, and so he says, they should administer justice in a way that those who do the wrong thing should be afraid as part of the justice that he's looking to those ministers to execute. And and when that word sword, that's the word, it was a short sword that was used for public execution. And and so he says, God hasn't given him that power just in vain. He hasn't just said, oh yeah, you know, that's a light thing. No, this is a very important thing. And so he's looking for authorities and they have a responsibility to be the servant of God. Look how he puts it, an avenger who carries God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Whew, that's a strong line, isn't it? But again, notice this is why he can tell us in Romans chapter 12, you don't take vengeance. You don't execute justice on your own. In fact, as an individual, it frees me up. I can live out the commands that Jesus gave me. I mean, Jesus said, I'm to love my enemy. Paul says, you love your enemy. I'm free to do that because I'm trusting that God's put other powers in place to execute justice. God hasn't ignored justice in this time. And so he has the expectation that authorities would rule in a way that those who do wrong should be afraid. And so that's part of it as we look to our authorities, we go, man, are, are they executing justice? Are they executing justice for everyone? Are they executing justice fairly across that? But are they doing it in a way that those who do wrong would go, man, I don't wanna do wrong. That actually makes me afraid because they will actually fulfill this role that God's called them to. Now with that as well, look at the third thing. Another core role is is governing in a way that establishes the common good. So it's executing justice and establishing the common good. And, and that's that part that sometimes I think we forget about because as soon as we talk about government, you talk about politics at all, we immediately go to the things we don't like and the things we, we don't agree with. But again, remember, here's God's divine design to bring the greatest stability, 
peace and good for the most people. And he does that through governments and in different forms. And in our country, sometimes we grind about the things we don't like, but do you think about all the things that we have because government's in place? That we have road system and traffic laws. Everybody can't drive the way they want to. And so you didn't come here today panicked probably that every cross section you came to is somebody about to slam into me because the government's put in place a system that maybe I don't like the speed they pick on some roads, but they put a system in place. That, that somebody came and picked up your garbage this week. It doesn't pile up around your house. That we have a 911 system that I can call. That, that, that we have defense. We have national defense. I mean, I can go on and on and on. A lot of times I think we forget all the good that comes from it because we focus on the parts that we don't like. And that's part of Paul says, hey, they're ministers to establish the most common good for people in that. And as Paul's writing this, you know, he recognized it in the Roman world. Now, I'll tell you in a minute some of the authorities he was living under, but it was despicable people. And yet God used Rome, this brutal empire, to unbelievably spread the gospel around the world. That Rome came in and in dominating all these countries, they united the world in a way it had never been united before. They created a road system that you could walk across so a guy like the Apostle Paul could take the gospel all over the world. They created a stability so that people weren't robbed on the road in the way that they were in ages past. They created common communication systems and mail system that would go. So now these gospel messages could start going out of it. That, that even when I look at what are the worst empires, God's using it for the common good. Now, if you lived in it in the time and you experienced the persecution at the time, you may not feel it as much, but for those of us who can step back, we can go, God, you were good in that system, even in the abuses of that way. So if you look at those who are in government and if God's called you to serve in government, if you're a governing authority at any level, uh, one, I applaud you that you're following his leading in that. We need Christians and godly people who would commit themselves to the public good, who would commit themselves to stepping into that. So I applaud you in that. I will remind you in that you don't just answer to your constituency according to Romans chapter 13, you answer to God as well because you're his minister. Now, what about the people? Each person is subject to the authorities except when they violate God's commands. So he says you're to be subject to the authorities, each of us. And, and that balance between it of, we always are subject to the authorities except when it crosses that line. Look how Peter puts it. Peter, by the way, agrees with Paul. This isn't just a Paul thing. Peter says, be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He says, hey, you Christians live in a way that people that are slandering the gospel, they're slandering the church, they're saying all these crazy things about us. We need to be the best citizens. We need to be the one and, and we're subject to those people. 
Now, this is the same Peter though, by the way, in Acts chapter five, when he was told to stop preaching the gospel, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And so it's not a blanket subjection. It's not whatever the government says, no matter what, we just have to do that. They go, no, where you can, you do that, you live that out. But where it crosses that line, and you see it all throughout scripture, of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, of Peter and Paul, both of whom would be executed by Rome. Peter, from what we can tell by crucifixion, Paul was beheaded. When he says the government bears that sword, they don't bear it in vain, that would be the very sword used against him. So let me just say, these guys don't write this lightly. They don't just say, well, you should be subjected. It's no big deal. No, it's a very big deal. In fact, they always had to live in that space of, man, how do I take this gospel message forward? How do I stand up for the rights that we should, when we should, but in the same time, live in a way that people would go, man, you're a good citizen. You bring that good that is here. As we do that, notice Paul says, each person is to obey out of conscience and to avoid punishment. He says that the two sides of it, you obey one so that you don't get punished. That's the practical side. But as a Christian, it goes beyond that. We obey out of conscience as well. So how, how do I, before God, with a good conscience, fully live the laws that my authorities have placed on me? And I don't just get to look at them and go, well, that's the stupidest law ever. It may be. But as a Christian, I I live in good conscience before God. And then each person is to give what is owed. And here's where it gets hard. Taxes, respect, and honor. Taxes and respect. Look at this line. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. This is a hard verse. Now one, anybody here love paying taxes? I'm not saying you're not supposed to have an accountant. Don't pay more taxes than you need to pay. But he says you pay your taxes. Now, one of the reasons he emphasizes taxes a couple of times is he's writing Israelites. And this is where the Jewish people in particular really would have a hard problem with Romans 13, one through seven. Remember I told you the forms of government? Israel under God was a theocracy. It was a theocracy set up that the spiritual authority was greater than even the civic authority. And and so if you were an Israelite and and your laws were not just the civic laws, they were also spiritual laws, they were also sacrificial laws, all of it was embedded together. And God governed and he, he ruled through that and he spread his message to the world through that, through that nation. That's why when Jesus was here, his disciples were so concerned, when are you gonna put Israel back on the throne? When are you gonna take it as a king? When are we gonna have the theocracy again that this is the country, this is the rule, and and the rest of the world is gonna come to us through that? And they couldn't grasp, one, that Jesus was actually God, but two, that in his kingdom, he was no longer gonna do it through a theocracy. It was gonna be through the church across all people across all nations, across everyone. 
And so, and so for Jews in that early time, I mean, for them, Rome represented this repression. It represented everything that was anti-God. And so to pay your taxes to Rome means you're supporting the wrong empire. And so it was the most common way of revolt for them was around taxes. That's why Jesus, when the Pharisees tried to trip them up, remember they said, hey, should we pay our taxes or not? What do you think, Jesus? The whole thing was just to trip him up because it was such a hot issue with it of how could you pay taxes to those horrible emperors? How could you pay taxes to this system that's undermining God's kingdom here? Remember Jesus' brilliance in it, in his answer? I I love how he answers, but he's also saying something to us as well. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They threw him a coin and he says, whose picture's on this? Who put his likeness on this? They said, Caesar's. He said, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Hey, Caesar put his picture on all these. He must really love them. These are his, let him have them. But then notice the second line, and to God, the things that are God. Who is made in the image of God? Who has God's likeness on them? People. It's a much more powerful thing that Jesus is calling to. Caesar wants his coins, let him have his coins. You know what God wants? God wants the people who bear his likeness. So render to God your lives and who you are. That's a powerful answer, isn't it? See, he says there's something bigger than just money. And, And so Paul comes to a Jewish people who said, man, We don't want it to be like this. We want it to be a theocracy. We want it established that way. And and God, Paul looks at him and says, pay your taxes. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's part of your citizenship. That's part of what empowers the government to be the minister that it's called to be. Pay your taxes in it. And and as you do that, and, and I would say that to us, pay your taxes. It's interesting, you know, back in 1986, seven million children disappeared in one night. Seven million. It was April 15th, 1986. It was the first time ever the government required you to put the social security number of your dependents on your taxes. Up until that point, you could just list their names. And suddenly when you were required with a social security number, seven million children that were on taxes the year before no longer existed. Because it was easy to cheat it. Paul says Christians don't live like that. Pay your taxes. the, The harder one of this may be though, show respect and honor. Show respect and honor. You go, ooh. Show respect and honor, not just when it's the person of your political party who's in the White House, who won the election. He says, you you show them respect to the office. Maybe one of the greatest things that's been lost in our current time, the level of vitriol with it. 
Now, I know some of you right now, you're sitting there going, but Tim, aren't we supposed to speak up for what's right? Absolutely speak up for what's right. John the Baptist did that and he lost his head over it, but he spoke up for what was right. (laughs) So I'm not saying that's this, oh, we're silent at all times. You go, but but Tim, Paul wouldn't write this if he knew who was in control today. Can Can I give you just a little history of these emperors? that he's living under. You got Caligula, Caligula. I mean, his name is synonymous with evil, crazy emperors. He killed his mother and his brother for fear they would take his throne. He had an open sexual relationship with three of his sisters. He would often cross-dress in public. He's crazy as a loon. He declared war against Neptune, the god and made soldiers fight the sea. He made his favorite horse, Incitatus, a Roman senator. Brought the horse down with the senators. (laughs) Uh, The problem with the horse being a senator is they always vote nay. So that's a bad joke with that. I mean, he's followed up by Nero, who's actually in control when Peter and Paul are writing these things, who blamed Christians for the fires in Rome, who'd murder them in mass, who'd set them on fire, who'd be responsible for the crucifixion of Peter and the beheading of Paul. When they wrote this, they knew full well governing authorities that you would look at and go, no, there's nothing about their life that I personally respect. In fact, they're bound by evil. But they're calling Christians to live in a way that you go, you know, I actually believe God's in control. I actually believe he's using these authorities, crazy as they may be at the time. And so part of the the way that I comport and carry myself is I'm a citizen who pays taxes. I show honor, I show respect. Now, these are these things that are called for all time. I wanna close out three things just for our time, for our time. Because we live in a different place than the Roman Empire. In the same way that the Roman Empire was different than the Jewish people, we live in a different place. So just a few things to finish out for. One, pray for the authorities. It's the greatest recognition that you believe God's in control. If you actually believe God is the authority overall, especially when it comes to government, especially when it comes to politics, especially when it comes to an election cycle, especially when it comes to any of these things, the greatest evidence you actually believe God's in control is you pray about it. And so let me ask you, do you pray about it? Paul said, pray in this way. He said, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God. He says, pray in a way, pray for these authorities. Pray that God would work through them that we could lead a quiet and peaceful life. Pray that God would work, that they would actually execute what they're supposed to as ministers of God when they answered him one day. 
Which by the way, any authority, anybody in that, they will answer to God one day because they're his ministers. And so they'll have accountability to him in that. But he says, for you guys, pray, pray. Let me just ask you this. Do you you spend as much time praying about it as you do reading feeds and stories and watching the news? And, And you go, well, Tim, it's not an either or. I need to be informed. Yes, you need to be informed. But do you need to be informed more than you need to talk to the one who's actually in control? And so I think for all of us, how do we pray more? In fact, one of the things we're gonna do as a church, because I don't wanna just, oh, preach these things. I'm very convicted by this. It's much easier for me to read a feed and get mad and read the latest stories. And then what did they do now? And I, I do all that too. And I can turn on the news and I'm like, what? You know, all the things with it. And so I've been very convicted. Am I praying about this much? And if I don't have time to pray, what I'm saying through my practice is, I really don't think it does anything. And, and so I'm gonna call all of us, we're, we're launching as a church, we're gonna do 21 days of prayer and fasting together. 21 days together on that. In fact, as you leave today, you'll get a handout for when it starts. We're gonna do it up to the election, the next election cycle. And, and you'll see in it on the 21 days, it's not this big political thing as much as it is, how is the people of God, do we pray? Do we pray for what's going on? there's different verses, different prompts every day. You can get a text. If you want to sign up, you can see a way they will text you one with it. But it's, it's a time God moves through his people praying and fasting. That during the 21 days, we'd make a commitment individually of something that you'd give up either a meal a day or a time a day, that you give that up in order to devote yourself in prayer. Because we actually believe prayer changes things. We actually believe prayer makes a difference and we believe it's the command of scripture for all of us. A second thing with this, as citizens of this country, we have a responsibility to steward the power God has given us. We have the responsibility to steward the power. Remember I told you the governing authorities have a power that they have to answer to God about. Well, the interesting thing about being part of a constitutional republic, who has that power in this country? Oh, do we need a civics class? Who has the power? The people, the people. That's one of the great freedoms we have that frankly, I think Paul and Peter and all of them would have gone, are you kidding me? You get to vote, you get to pick your officials. No one's ever picked our officials in the history of the world up to that point. I mean, up to that point, they were either by birth or by power or by control, by country. They had no clue you'd actually live in a place where you get a vote. And so you go, man, what a gift that's been given to us. But it's a gift with the responsibility, by the way, guys. Because if God looks to the authorities to use their power for good, and we've been given that power in our vote and our voice, then we're gonna have to give account to him as well. So how did I use it? How did I steward it? And so there's a responsibility that you have. People ask me, they go, do you think Christians should vote? I go, absolutely. You got to steward what God's given you. Just like you need to steward your money. You need to steward your time. You need to steward the power that God's given you through that. So that we can have the kind of officials that would match what he describes here, that they would do those things in it. 
And so I, I just challenge you that as a citizen, are we using it? Look how Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Again, you honor them. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And so in our time period, I, I would just say it is our responsibility to be informed. It's our responsibility to use our vote before God because it's a stewardship principle. And maybe if you're like me, you can get so jaded that you go, oh, does it do any good? And, and, and yet that's not the point of it. The point of it is I've got a responsibility to steward this before God. And so I'll trust him that is for good. Final principle I'd say out of this is as citizens of heaven, we have a calling to represent well our true home. Never forget what's home and what's not. We are citizens of this country. If you're from this country, you live here in it. I vote and I practice and I do these things for its good, but not because I have to scramble and hold on to it because it's home. Not because it's a theocracy, it's not Israel. And it won't be. But it's where God's placed me. Paul says our citizenship's in heaven and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He says our citizenship ultimately is in heaven. Corinthians says we are ambassadors for Christ. We're representatives of that kingdom here. And so I live as an ambassador as one who, who lives this out. And, and to do that, I, I do it in distinctive ways. In fact, one, one of the most fascinating things for me, when I go back to that early church when Paul was writing this, when I look at the challenges they were up against and the fact that they still shaped the world according to what scripture called them, despite everything that was against them. In fact, Larry Hurtado, he's got a couple of books. One is, why would anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? And then the other one is the destroyer of the gods, how Christianity overcame. And in both books, he said there were five things that overcame in that culture. Five things that were distinctive about Christianity. The, the first one was their commitment to racial diversity and equality that the world had not seen. Up until that time, you were about your tribe, your people, no matter what. And Christianity came along and said, you know what? We can actually be united together. And they actually lived it. There was a commitment to the poor and the disenfranchised. Up until that time, no one took care of the poor. But the church said, we will. Because our Savior's called us to that. There was a commitment to forgiveness instead of retaliation. Guys, this was an eye for an eye culture the world over. Christians stood out because they were the first people that even when they were attacked, they didn't retaliate. They lived out what Paul told them to in Romans 12. There was a commitment to pro-life ethics where the church from the very beginning, you see the earliest writings, the Didache is the holy book of practice from the first century where the church both vocally and in practice stood out against both abortion and infanticide. And it was radical at that time because up until that time, the parent had all right, children had no value. And Christians stepped forward and they didn't just do it with their speech. Really what stood out, they did it with their actions. They took the babies. They cared for women. 
They stepped into the gaps. The last distinctive that stood out, there was a commitment to biblical sexual standards. And this was so radical at the time. But you know why so many people were attracted to it actually? Even though it was a, a much more narrow sexual standard than the world, it was the first group that stood up for the rights of women and children when it came to sexual ethics. Because up until that time, men had free reign to do whatever they want, to use whoever they want, and it didn't matter. And then the Christians came along and said, oh no, no, husbands and wife are held to the same standard. And there's actually this flourishing biblical ethic that you don't have to be ruled by your appetites. And sex could actually be something that nourishes the relationship for a lifetime instead of destroys people. And the rest of the world looked at it and go, oh, we've never seen it like that. Now, if you look through this list, you're hard pressed to go, well, which party should I vote? Because you might see things on both. You might look at this list, you go, would living this out really make a difference? It absolutely would. In fact, let me close out with the words of Diognetus from the second century, as he wrote about the early church. He's writing, just observing Christians, how strange they are. Listen to these words and then we'll close with it. He, he wrote this, this is in the hundreds. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country or language or customs. They neither inhabit cities of their own or employ peculiar forms of speech or lead a life marked out by anything else. They're like everyone else. They dress like, they live like, they're among everyone. In fact, they follow the customs of the native when it comes to clothing and food and all the ordinary conduct, but, but they have this wonderfully striking method of life. Listen to this striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. They don't see their countries as their ultimate home. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet they endure all things of foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country and every land their birth is a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table. In other words, anyone can come and eat with them, but they do not have a common bed. In other words, they don't sleep around. They are in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lifestyles. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They're put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They're lacking in all things, and yet they abound in all. They're dishonored, and yet they, in their very dishonor, they're glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and they repay the insults with honor. They do good, yet they're punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoiced as if quickened to life. They're attacked by both the Jews as foreigners and they're persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred because of their lifestyle. I mean, you, you think living out this makes a difference? Absolutely. It's powerful. 
And so as Christians who've been called to live in 21st century, and for those of us who live in America, yeah, we're, we're called to live out in a way, but it's not just finding the power through the politics, guys. It's finding the power through the greater authority of Jesus Christ so that we can live it well, we vote according to it. We speak according to it. And for some of you that have been called to engage it, step into the arena. We need Christians who will step forward and be in politics and speak truth in that. And we support you in it. But for all of us, you have a power of witness in the way you live this out that I wonder 1900 years from now, when somebody's writing about us, how will they describe us? Would it be in these terms? Would we have lived in these ways to the change of the culture around us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We pray that you would just lead through us, especially as we go into another election season. Lord, I pray, could we live out well these verses? Could we um, live out in a way that we show the world what your church is like? Lord, I pray that we would be like the church that Diagnetus described, that we would live our, our ethics out in a way beyond what just the law says, but what you've called us to. Lord, I pray those who are part of venture who are involved in politics, those that you've called to, to be advocates, to be champions, to step forward, I pray that you would empower them to make a difference in this arena that you've called them to. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would steward well the power you've given us. We'd steward our vote. We'd steward our time for the sake of the common good that you've called us to in it. Lord, I pray for those who are stepping into these gaps. I think of our partner ministries. I think of, of Healing Grove as they take care of the disenfranchised and the poor. I think of real options as they advocate for life, as they take care of mothers and children. I think of Foster the Bay, of those who step forward to foster children in order to make a difference. Lord, I, I think of City Team and their care for not only the poor, but the addicted, those who, who need help and they reach out to it. I think of the ways that you've empowered us as a church to make a difference in this community. We pray we would live in the Bay in a way that people that even would disagree with what we believe would be hard pressed to find a reason from our lifestyle to sign blame. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.